<laughs> well, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel this evening, and uh, good to be here now that I'm a grandpa, and uh, awesome. I told Lisa, I said, we're going to get some pictures for Sunday morning, so when we start announcements, you're just going to see like 500 pictures, but... Um, <laughs> Well, it's just awesome, and Annie's doing well, and the baby's doing fabulous, and it's just a blessing, and that we've been blessed, and uh, blessed to have Bruce cover for me on Sunday. That was awesome, and, and uh, just great. This is what God's doing and moving and working in our hearts, and so it's just been awesome. So we're going to continue our study through the book of Jeremiah. We are in chapter 16 tonight. We'll see how far we get. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 16, if anyone needs a Bible, they're up here. They can get up and get one. It says 16. What's wrong, Andrew? Jeremiah 15 tonight. No. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Chapter 16. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the joy that it is to gather together as your people. Lord, behold how good and pleasant it is for your brethren to dwell together and unity. And we are blessed, Lord. We're blessed to be a part of this, this fellowship, Lord. And Lord, to be able to spend this time together in your word, knowing, Lord, that it's never in vain, that you always have something for us, Lord, to glean from, to learn about you, to draw us closer into our relationship with you, more in love with you. We thank you, God, for your love towards us. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, remember that Jeremiah was a, just a young man when God called him into this prophetic ministry. And, and I remember when I was called into the ministry, and, and I remember hearing from a pastor teaching about being called into the ministry. And he would say, if you could do any other job than ministry, then, then Christian ministry is not for you. Do anything else, go for it. And I thought, yeah, right. But then after pastoring for 20 years, I understand why he would say that. <laughs> Sometimes full-time ministry can be, be demanding. It's not what people think it is. Many pastors, they, they give up before really making a difference. I think a lot of times people view pastors as this glamorous job. He's up in the front. He's got everyone's attention. He's respected and admired. He only works one day a week. Man, what a job. But they don't see behind the scenes the sacrifices that the man makes, the family, you know, the scrutiny, the unfair criticism, the attacks, the doubts, the cynicism, the demands on his time, the disappointments he battles with, the demands he manages, the determination he needs. All this, you know, it's not an easy job. And at times it does take more than one day a week to do this. Now, there are great blessings that come from it as well, and being used by God to share His Word and minister is one of the greatest privileges and blessings that a man can have. Yet, the job of an average pastor, myself included, is nothing compared to the ministry that Jeremiah was called to. 
I think if Jeremiah were the only example of what it's like to be in full-time ministry, there would not be any takers. God's calling on the prophet Jeremiah would make the strongest men uh, shudder in terror. Jeremiah made heavy sacrifices. He endured hard, hard circumstances. In fact, in chapter 16, as we begin, the prophet shares some of the sacrifices God had had, uh, on the calling of his life that was required of him. Again, remember, he was a young man, and here in chapter 16, the Lord comes to him and says, look at verse 1. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Oh, man, could you imagine? I, I mean, of all the things Jeremiah was called to do, I would imagine this is one of the most difficult, because the highest uh, of the Jewish, the highlight of the Jewish man is, is to be married, to have children. Even today, you find in Jewish synagogues that they're not very large single groups. God's command uh, to Adam was to be fruitful and multiply. And in Judaism, it was a man's duty to preserve the family line, to pass on his land and his name, to remain unmarried was unusual. Yet God had a very special calling on Jeremiah's life. Now, apparently, Paul also was given this special calling. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, Paul referred to his unmarried status as, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. Paul wished that everyone could be single, and not because he was against marriage. We know in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul praised marriage, something that is beautiful, meaningful union that honors Christ and teaches us you know, heavy spiritual lessons. Yet in 1 Corinthians 7, he describes how marriage bogs you down in, in the things of this world. You can get distracted with mortgages and jobs and kids and responsibilities that can take away your attention from the ministry. And some ministries are just better served if you're single. Of course, there's one big disadvantage to being single. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, But to each one is given his own gift from God. I say to the unmarried, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I heard one pastor say, if God calls you to be single, he'll help you with the tingle. (laughs) I didn't say it. Uh, I just heard it, okay? (laughs) He'll do something to help you temper the passion. But normally you'll find that there's a great deal of encouragement in the Bible to marry. A strong Christian marriage is, is a testimony to the world around us. Even in in Christian dating, it's a testimony to the world around us. You show that that Jesus is your first love by refusing to be in a romantic relationship with a non-believer. You go against the the flow of society by abstaining from sexual behavior until marriage. You show the world that, that, that you agree with God's design by marrying a person of the opposite sex. You, you keep your marriage pure by, by, pure by refusing to commit adultery. And, and except for a few exceptions as an adultery and abandonment, you remain married for life. Too many Christians today have abandoned this marriage lifestyle and they look exactly like the world and we no longer stand out. We're not putting on Jesus Christ. Here, Jeremiah was told not to marry. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in full-time ministry should not be married. It's not Catholicism here. Nowhere does the Lord require that for a person to be a pastor, teacher, they must remain single. In fact, even in the listing of an elder, the man is to be the husband of one wife. God places a great deal of emphasis on Christian marriage and, and we're to uphold the biblical marriage. Yet marriage just wasn't God's will for Jeremiah. And think about it. Imagine for a moment 
how hard it would have been if you were Mrs. Jeremiah. And you had to see your husband spend time in prison, tortured, have the corrupt priest at that time planning and plotting his assassination, watch your husband become a human punching bag. What a cruel thing to do to a woman. And the Lord knew this. And he said, Jeremiah, this isn't for you. You're not going to marry. But more than that, he called him not to have children either. And then the Lord talks about why. Look at verse 3. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them, and their fathers who begot them in this land. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuge on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. God bless you. Have a good night. And this is like, this is horrible, you know. But, but, but we see why and what's going on here. Immediately, we, why it was better for Jeremiah not to marry and have children is because the Jews, the, 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 those in Judah, God's people, uh, they're going to be facing really hard times and, and, and there was no time to be having children. Judgment was coming because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, because of their idol worship, because of all these things, sons and daughters and wives would die gruesome deaths. So really, childlessness was God's mercy. Look at verse 5. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord. Loving kindness and mercies, both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread in the morning for them, to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. So prior to this final Babylonian invasion, Jeremiah was to quit attending funerals and he was to cease from mourning at all for the dead. Now again, remember, Jeremiah was ministering to people who were, were past the point of no return. Other prophets have come and, and uh, pleaded with the Jews to repent, but they refused. And so Jeremiah was really to set, sent to oversee their judgment. Rather than raise the nation from the dead, God had called Jeremiah to officiate their funeral. And that's why God tells Jeremiah not to feel sorry for these people. Not to extend mercy. See, repentance is mercy's prerequisite. And the nation had refused to repent. And when he talks about here how they shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves or make themselves bald for them. This excessive weeping and this self-mutilation and shaving the head, these were all ways of the pagans who mourned for the dead. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 14, God outlawed these expressions among His people of Israel. This is something they shouldn't have been doing anyway. God's people were supposed to approach death with faith. faith. Yeah, yeah, it does hurt. And we do grieve at the loss of a fellow believer, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve because we're going to miss them. But man, they're in the presence of the Lord. Nothing could be better for them. I love Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But here the Lord tells Jeremiah not to grieve for the people for, for another reason. Because they're getting what's coming to them. They will die at the hands of Babylon and get what they deserve. So, so if Jeremiah were mourning for them, then that would send the wrong message and cast a cloud on God's judgment. As if God was doing something wrong. Reminds me of the two brothers. Both men were, were thugs, you know, pretty much gang guys, hoodlums. And one of them was shot in a drug bust. 
the surviving brother came to the pastor and asked him to officiate the funeral. He said, Pastor, I want you to tell everyone that my brother was a righteous man, a saint. The pastor replied, I can't do that. Everyone knows better. I have my integrity. The brother promised if, if the pastor could sidestep his conscience, there would be a really big offering in it for him. And, and the church needed the cash, though at the funeral the pastor proclaimed, we all know the deceased. He was a low life, a crook, a dirty, rotten scoundrel. But I can tell you with a clear conscience that compared to his brother here, he was a saint. Jeremiah was a pastor, and it's not a pastor's job to console folks and families that God is judging. So don't, don't grieve with them. Also, the Lord says in verse 8, Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. God is saying, there has to be a separation here from you and these people. He's being restricted from partying. You should not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and to drink. Now, obviously, God was going to put a stop to all their partying when judgment came, but, but God wanted to keep Jeremiah apart from them as well. For the same reason, Jeremiah partying with them would send the wrong message and, and cast a cloud on God's justice. Now, I want to keep this in, in the realm of our heart and its desires because it's way too easy to get all legalistic about certain Christian liberties. But regarding your heart, would you say that you'd rather be with Jesus and his people partying, so to speak, fellowshipping together? Are your times of fun more characteristic of, of the things in the world and the way the world parties? Yes, even Jesus, when he was hung out on the earth, he hung out with sinners. He was accused of being a glutton. He was accused of being a drunkard. And of course, he was neither. And yet, when he partied with sinners, he led them to faith. You know, they wanted to be more like him rather than vice versa. Here, the point is this. Jeremiah was God's spokesman. It mattered what he did. It mattered where he went. People drew conclusions about God based on Jeremiah's actions. As God's representative, he had a, had a greater responsibility. You know, as a pastor, I sense the same obligation. Rarely do, you know, we, we sit in, in the bar area of a restaurant. Uh, you know, I'm aware if, I, if I'm seen there, I might draw attention to people to, to the wrong conclusion. I won't have lunch with a woman other than my wife or daughters. You know, and I think that could be said and should be said for those who are, are visible in ministry. You don't want people jumping to the wrong conclusions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. When you represent God in the eyes of people, you have more to think about than, than just yourself. Jeremiah knew disaster was at the door, and he couldn't just keep on a normal schedule as if nothing was wrong. Look at verse 10. He says, And it shall be, when you show this people all these words, and they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity, or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? <laughs> I mean, doesn't it seem odd? That the people would ask why the Lord was declaring such a terrible judgment for his people. Why they would ask, what is our sin? What do we do? But then I started thinking about how often how we respond when we're confronted with sin. You know, especially as kids. You know, you're raising five kids. When you're disciplining your kid and you tell them what they did was wrong and they have to be disciplined for it. And what's their response? What? What did I do? What did I do? <laughs> you know what you did. Okay, you know exactly what you did. They just don't want to be held accountable for what they did. 
The Jews knew the terms that God laid out for them in his covenant with them. But by now they were led astray by these false prophets as well as being comfortable in their sins. Their conscience was dead. And in their minds they probably really thought they had done nothing wrong, but in their hearts they knew better. So God tells Jeremiah to remind them when they say, what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Verse 11, he says, Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they have walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. Here the Lord says, not only have you forsaken me and walked after these other gods, not only have you not kept my law, but you've actually done worse than your fathers have done. Uh, sure, they, they followed idols, they worshipped them, but, but you've done that and more. Every one of you are following after the dictates of your own evil hearts so that none of you are listening to me at all. I think it's much like the days of Noah prior to the flood where every intent of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. That's why the Lord says, you've done worse. He goes on in verse 13, Therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night. There I will not show you favor. So that's, that's why judgment is coming. Verse 14, Therefore behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, from all the lands where he has driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. Tucked away in these verses, in the first part of them, is the promise that God is not going to abandon his people forever. He speaks here of a, of a second exodus, a time when he'll bring the Jews back to their land and fulfill their promises to them. Yeah, Judah's going to be taken captive to Babylon and subjected to 70 years of hard labor, of bondage. But after the 70 years were complete, the Jews would be brought back into the land. And yeah, I think we've seen a similar return of the Jews in our day. After 2,000 years as a displaced people, God is bringing the Jews back into their land. And, and the Jews in Israel today really are in fulfillment of this prophecy as well. Verse 19. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Will a man make God for himself which are not God's? No matter how bad things would get, Jeremiah saw the Lord as his strength, his fortress, his refuge. That's because everything we need is to be found in our relationship with him despite of our circumstances. Here Jeremiah indicates that the people of God were to be so attracted to the Gentiles, to the non-believers, that the non-believers would recognize how empty and meaningless their lives were apart from the one true God. And that the non-believers would, be, would look and go, man, these idols that we are worshiping, they are nothing. We need to worship the one true God. I mean, isn't that what our lives are supposed to be about? The people just see our love for the Lord Jesus and how content and at peace we are in our lives. And the non-believers look at us and go, man, 
Well, why am I living out in this world in this mess? I want to follow the God that you serve. Verse 21. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Again, God has chosen these believers to reveal himself to the lost, perishing sinner. It's by your life and lifestyle. The Lord says they, they shall know my, that my name is the Lord. Okay, chapter 17. Now, this can be pretty rough on us because it's going to describe our human hearts and, and my heart, your heart, constantly departing from God and deceiving ourselves as we're doing it. Billy Graham, I believe, is the one who coined the phrase, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Something very wrong with us. You know, we're born into this world and our trespasses and sins. And even after we're born again, the flesh remains and our hearts are prone to depart from the Lord. But, but chapter 17 also is going to give us some of those clouds parting, sun shining through wonderful God-glorying verses to encourage us as well. Look at verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars while their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. God was to be worshipped on one hill, Jerusalem's temple mount, yet the Jews were worshipping myriads of idols and, and images and, and seemingly on every high hill. And, and Jeremiah identifies the problem. What had occurred on their hills had originated in their hearts. Sin had taken a, an iron pen, a permanent mark, and has engraved rebellion on, on every human heart. You know, when my kids were growing up, I, I never had a problem really with Laura or Chris or Annie really writing on the walls. But then Matthew and Joey came along, and, and it was like, it's just what they do. You know? I, they, you know, and I would see it on their bunk beds and on the walls and on the desk in their room. Now, now you think as they got older, they would stop that. But, but uh, Matthew, in order to remember our Wi-Fi password, actually wrote it in, in permanent Sharpie on the wall in, in his bedroom there. And even though he's been gone for what, you know, two months or so. I don't mind that because time to time I forget the password and I have to re it up. So I go into the bedroom. And, okay, there it is. All right, I got it. I got it. So I think if I paint the room, I'm probably still going to leave it on the wall. I, I don't know. But it, it'd be easy to paint over it, you know, to erase it. On the other hand, they also got into carving as they were young on the desk in Matt's room, and there's all sorts of carvings in their initials and names, and, and, and I look at the desk and I said, well, you know what, I could try and stand that out, but it's going to be like, it, it's in there, you know. Yeah, it's easy to, to cleanse a wall, but carving is harder to cleanse. On a side note, that's why you need to be careful if you're into tattoos, because you, you just never know. You may have something that's really cool now, but tomorrow it could be really, really dorky. But, but, but this is the problem when it comes to our hearts. Sin isn't just a smudge. It's worse than a tattoo. Sin carves, cuts ruts of rebellion into, into our very nature. That's why the answer isn't to whitewash it or, or touch it up. Man, we need a new heart altogether. But that's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. You, you must have a, have a new heart. David cried, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, Psalm 51.10. Later in the book of Jeremiah, God will promise his people a new heart, a new covenant, but for now his focus is on how they, how they violated the current covenant with their wicked hearts. And, and as a result, again, judgment, judgment is coming. Look at verse 3. All my mountain in the field I will give as a plunder, your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. 
And you even yourself shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. In every way he could, by every image he could employ, God was warning Judah of the Babylonian invasion and subsequent captivity. He would not spare Jerusalem. He would not spare its temple. Their idolatry had to be checked and broken. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Curses the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. See, trusting in man means that you're, 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 you're trusting in yourself, really. You're not trusting in God. It's putting your faith in, in human effort and not in the Lord. You know, the flesh we know in the Bible refers to our, our natural bent, our tendency towards pride and, and self-gratification. Even after we're saved, man, that, that flesh remains in us. And it's a lifelong struggle against it until we go home to be with the Lord. And that struggle against your flesh is here described as a departure from the Lord. When you, when you trust in your flesh, man, you're always going to be disappointed. You're always going to be left dry and empty. Now, I love verse 7 here. because It's one of those clouds parting, sun shining through verses. Verse 7, he says, But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit. Jeremiah must have been reading Psalm 1 at the time. He's going, this is good stuff here. I'm going I'm to write this down. The person who trusts God is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. They're planted. They, they're, they prosper. They're productive. Yeah, the drafts will come. The temperatures will rise. The, the, the times when the heat is on. But the person who trusts God, it says here, will not be anxious. There will be peace. Why? Because our hope is in the Lord. Not in my flesh. Not in what, what man could do or man's ideas. But it's in the Lord God himself. You know, it's been said, if you plant a tree, you're planting hope because it shows you that you expect to be around long enough to gather its fruit and enjoy its shade. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. Now, if we're, if we're always putting our hope in the Lord, we'll be like, like that tree. You're always bearing fruit. You know, Jesus used the same illustration in John 15:5. He that abides in me and I in him shall bring forth much fruit. You know, fruit doesn't struggle to be Fruitful. You know, you don't ever hear a tree, you know, fruit tree struggling to produce fruit. Okay, poof, apple, you know. It's not difficult. The branch just hangs there and, 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 and the fruit inevitably comes. The same is true for us. We don't have to struggle to produce fruit. Instead, we're just to abide in the Lord, trust in the Lord, hope in the Lord. And fruit will come. On the other hand, I really don't like other hands. On the other hand, look at verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Man, we've heard this verse many times. And that's why humans cannot be trusted. Our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah really doesn't have a flattering opinion of human nature. But, but here's, here's the point. Nothing is more wicked than an unchanged human heart. One commentator said, we might say our heart is always attempting to con us into something that is not good for us in any way. Its inducements may indeed appear attractive on the surface, but further examination would reveal that it, it appeals are fraudulent and risky. 
Our hearts lie to us. It, it deceives us. You know, you hear it so often, especially in Disney movies, follow your heart. You know, it'll you know, take you where you need to go. No, our hearts are desperately wicked. That word desperately wicked means sick beyond cure, unsalvageable. We can't change our hearts. We can't heal them. God must do the changing. God must do the healing and save us. That's why, again, we need a new heart. That's why, again, we're not just repaired when we come to Christ. We're made new. We receive a new heart, a new nature, a new spirit. God isn't, you know, uh, rebuilding the old man. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. At the end of verse 9, Jeremiah asked of the human heart, who can know it? But then in verse 10, the Lord answers his question. Look at verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Think about what God is saying here. He's saying he's searching our hearts. And he'll give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. See, God wants to reward us. He's always looking to, to provide opportunities for us to bear fruit, spiritual fruit, and, 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 and with his help and his enabling. He comes looking for it. I dare even saying hoping for it. The kind of fruit he's looking for, at least the stated here, isn't what you accomplish. It's how you respond in life and how you respond in circumstances. It's what he finds in your heart after a deep and thorough examination. Is your heart really set upon God? Are you really submitting to his will, walking in his ways despite of the obstacles and difficulties? Or are you deceiving yourself? Someone put it this way, in, day, in the day of illusions... And other confusions, upon our delusions, we base our conclusions. I mean, we can be a pretty mixed up people. Only God can reveal our true intentions, our hidden motives, and He's faithful to tell us if we're willing to listen. Verse 11. As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days. At the end, he will be a fool. You know, there's a, there's, I found that there's a lot of discussion here about the accuracy of this proverb regarding partridges. Do they really brood but not hatch? Some say yes, some say no. I say, who cares? It's not important. But, but you know, it, it's like saying a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Is that statement really scientifically correct? Or is it mathematically correct? No, but we all understand what it means. So what is being said here is that not everything is as it seems. Not every bird, you know, that broods will hatch a chick. Not every person with great riches did the hard work you assume was necessary to have what they have. There's such thing as ill-gotten gain. And those guilty of receiving it will be exposed in the end. I think the point of the partridge proverb is that you can approach life one of two ways. Yours or God's. Yours, when you, when you give into the flesh, it's that of, of, of the thieving partridge, but what you gather and brood over will never hatch, will never bring life. Or you can go God's way, the right way, and be fruitful. Verse 12. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. That's a verse that we can, we can transfer to ourselves because we have a New Testament uh, a parallel to that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we're told... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We can take this verse in the Old Testament and link it to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that tells us that God has raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
See, the con man, the, 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 the partridge, our wicked hearts always suggested there's something better than being in the sanctuary of the Lord. There's something better. Or oh, you're missing out on something, you know, by, by being in fellowship with Jesus and other believers. Well, well, you're missing out and you're missing out on that. Listen, that's a lie gone all the way back into the Garden of Eden. And it's a still a lie today. Jeremiah goes on in verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Over and over again we read, you know, reminding us just of Jesus being the fountain of living waters. The New Testament teaches us that those who trust in the Lord, that their names are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. Now, in contrast, we, here we learn that those who depart from the Lord, their names will be written in the earth, literally you know, in the earth. And I think, remember when Jesus confronted those who were ready to stone the woman taken in adultery and, and he stooped down and, and, and he started kind of doodling in the dirt, writing, perhaps he wrote you know, the names of the bystanders that were around them. Or even maybe he wrote this verse, you know, uh, uh, you know, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth and writing their names down. Verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Jeremiah, he's been a faithful messenger of God, a faithful shepherd of God's flock, and he, he prophesied God's coming judgment, but he had taken no pleasure says here, in the woeful day. Now, Jeremiah didn't really like the message he was told to deliver. He would probably, you know, would not have chosen to live at that time if it was left up to him. That nevertheless, he kept on serving the Lord because that's what God had called him to do, to give out the word. Verse 17. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed to persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with a double destruction. <laughs> wow. Well, don't let it happen to me, but bring double on them. See, he's predicting the day of doom. As much as he believed and trusted God, he still needed encouragement that when Jerusalem's walls fell and his temple was on fire, that God would still be his hope. So he prayed. He says, do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. You know, we all put on a good front, but I think there are times, I think if we're honest, there are times when we wonder whether or not God is going to be there in that time of trouble. Oh, what if things get really, really bad? You know, is God going to be there for me as I believed He would? As I said He would? Have I, you know, I thought about this? I think we have some doubts. But since we have no way of knowing it until we go through it, then we must look at other people's lives and, and the lives of believers who have gone before us. I mean, look at Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, these men and these women, who God was there with them, even, even if, when they were martyred, God was still trusting them, trusting the Lord to see them through. Here's our hope in the day of doom. Verse 19. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. So, so again, we know in ancient times that the gates were where the, the center of the city hub. You know, it's like, like the city hall was there at the gates. And here the Lord is telling Jeremiah, go there, go to these gates and say, verse 12, Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves 
and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your house on the Sabbath day, nor do any work but hollow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. And I think I, I heard listening to Bruce's study on Sunday, I think he touched on this a little bit, that the Lord says to his people, listen, I've got ten commandments, okay, uh, you've broken them all, you've messed up all of them, but here's the deal, just keep one of them. Just one out of the ten, and you'd be okay. Just one, not even a difficult one. A day of rest. Just keep the Sabbath. That's it on a whole of judgment. Keeping the Sabbath it was a reminder to the Jews of God's creation and God's covenant. So in keeping the Sabbath, it was acknowledging God as a creator and redeemer. It was a part of pledging their allegiance to Him. But they couldn't even do that. Verse 23, But they did not obey nor incline their ear but made their neck stiff that they may not hear nor receive instruction. You know, I had the stiff neck last, last uh, Wednesday, and I thought, Lord, I'm listening to you, okay? I'm, it's, it's not because of my stiff neck. And, Lord, if there's anything I need to hear, let, let me hear it, okay? I don't want the stiff neck. Verse 24. And I shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hollow the Sabbath day to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They and their princes accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the city shall remain forever. Oh, God says, if, if you just follow me, you'd be so blessed. Obey me and I'll establish my kingdom forever. Verse 26, And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices Grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. Don't you just love that phrase? Sacrifices of praise. That's what God desires for us today. Now that Jesus, the true Lamb of God, has been offered up for the sins of the world, God no, no longer desires animal sacrifices, but, but sacrifices of praise. And God loves when we sing of His greatness, uh, of His faithfulness, uh, and all that He's done for us. In fact, Hebrews thirteen fifteen commands us, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. God's still here. I mean, it's holding out the opportunity of salvation and hope to them, even at this late stage of their backsliding, even when the judgment is hanging over their head, even when Babylon is marching to destroy this place. God is saying, if you just would do this, just turn to me, just, just obey me. And the gates here, the kings, the princes will be passing through Revealed, and you'll never be destroyed. You'll never be put out of the land. God's mercies are so extensive. Man, He extends, God extends His mercy right up to the moment a person dies. Oh, how merciful our God is. Chapter closes with the warning, verse 27. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gate of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. Chapter 17, that's it. We, we, uh, you know, chapter 18 is good. It's good stuff here. Um, we'll save it for next time. It's done here. It's ready to go, but we'll save it for next time. Because I want I want to do it slow and, and take it slow, but it, it man it talks about being the clay and the potter and how God forms us and shapes us and 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 the work that God's doing in our lives and and so read chapter eighteen and chapter nineteen and we'll do those next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning.
Yes, Lord, even though our hearts are deceitfully wicked, Lord, you know our hearts. And Lord, you are the great God that as we yield our, our lives to you, Lord, you show us areas in our lives that we need to work on, that we need to deal with. Father, we thank you for the, the grace that you've given to us, Lord, that you've opened up our eyes and you've showed us our need for you. Lord, we do pray, create in us a clean heart, O oh Lord. Help us to walk in you. Lord, help us to be different than the nose in this world, Lord, that, that people would see that there's a difference. Today, so often, Lord, uh, you can't tell a difference between a believer and a person in the world. They, they're living right along the side of believers, and there's no difference. Lord, help us to make a difference. Help people to see in our lives what we have, that when they look at us and they look at the joy and the peace, that they want that, they long for that, and, and they come to us and they ask for what is it? What does it mean? What is, what's different about us? Lord, it's you. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are, how great you are, your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.